there's going to be an arms race in terms of not only AI, but also, you know, getting ahead, using AI to build out cyber uh, security solutions. So this is, again, another uh, tailwind, if you will, for this sector. Companies, governments, individuals are just going to have to be more apt to secure. It also could create a lot of M&A in, in this business as well. It could end up being that, you know, the cybersecurity companies that lead the charge, you know, have the most capital, have the most scale, have the most access to AI, maybe even quantum computing to kind of stay ahead, if you will, against hackers. Hello and welcome to another episode of Opto Sessions. I'm very happy to introduce Christian Magoon, founder and CEO of Amplify ETFs. A recent acquisition of ETF Managers Group brings a total AUM at Amplify to over 9 billion. How are you doing today, Christian? Doing well, Ed. Good to see you again, and uh, thanks for having me on. Where Where are we calling from? So I'm in Colorado today, and uh, just got back from the world's largest ETF conference, uh, ETF Exchange, down in Florida, and spent a variety of days down there talking about ETFs and a variety of investment strategies. So uh, very timely to be with you here today to talk about a couple of interesting market segments. Yeah, I mean, there's obviously a lot going on in the markets at the moment. Um, and we've, we've chosen to talk about a few of the most interesting, I believe, today. Obviously, uh, a couple of these are available at Amplify. Um, cybersecurity, the first one we could stop on and particularly interesting because, uh, lots of companies are starting to use a, a lot more cyber or having to because of the risk of attacks. Um, and it appears like it's a very, uh, it's a sector that doesn't really have any ups and downs because of the nece- necessity to to have it throughout the business cycle because you can't afford for the business to shut down. Um, so yeah, I thought we could start there. It's projected, uh, I believe, to to increase from 200 billion to around 350 to 400 billion um, addressable market by 2026. Uh, what do you think are the key factors propelling this growth? Yeah, well, I mean, cybersecurity is super timely here, right? With all the geopolitical tensions that are happening. And certainly that's probably one of the factors that's propelling this growth is geopolitical tensions. Uh, you know, we're in a cold war in a lot of ways with a lot of countries where they have uh, units that are willing to deploy, you know, cyber attacks. Uh, and, you know, that's kind of a, a cold way to confront a company versus a hot way in terms of actual weapons and missiles and, and, and soldiers. So, you know, we're seeing, you know, common offenders, whether that's uh, uh, Russia, uh, China, uh, even, you know, earlier this week, uh, stories out that the U.S. actually deployed a cyber attack on an Iranian warship that was potentially directing, you know, Houthis uh, to target uh, commercial shipping vessels. So uh, many countries are using uh, cyber attacks as a way to kind of put their elbows out uh, it, uh, to disrupt um, kind of nations they're ha- having conflict with. And you can't rule out the, the when a government starts to spend in areas like this, it really can move uh, the markets. You know, aside from, you know, this geopolitical tension and kind of government spending, you also see corporations certainly being uh, victims of attacks. Um, you know, their reputation is on, on the line. 
line. They potentially have liabilities. Uh, so corporations around the world are, you know, now turning this into a, a C-suite issue. Boards are demanding that they spend money on, on, on cyber, cybersecurity defenses. And then certainly whenever attacks happen, there's a lot of money spent going back and actually kind of rectifying those systems and sweeping them to make sure that they're okay. And then finally, now you and I are living our lives so much more online. Uh, there's so much more content, whether that's, um, you know, banking information or ways we're paying for things, um, even some of our personal information, potentially photos, messages we're sharing with people. Um, when more assets are online, unfortunately, you know, criminals go online uh, more and more to uh, go out and get that. And, you know, cybersecurity, at least some of these programs, uh, once they're created, they're very uh, easy to run. They're very low cost and they can be done in mass. And all you need is a small percentage of those attacks to work. So, you know, increasingly, you know, average everyday citizens are buying, uh, you know, VPNs and, and firewall or cybersecurity software for their um, their computers and devices. So when you look at, you know, governments, corporations and uh, in individuals spending or increasing their spending in any theme, that's usually a good place to be for investors. And I think you kind of started this off perfectly uh, where you said, you know, this is kind of a growth segment, um, which, uh, you know, that that's important uh, for many investors to have exposure to growth. But in a lot of ways, it's defensive as well, because the underlying spending really is a necessity. Cybersecurity is really like a modern day utility. You have to have it and you really can't back off, especially if you're a government or corporation due to these liabilities, uh, due to these um, constant attacks and the reputational damage that can happen. So we really think the cybersecurity theme is is built to last and really underrepresented. Um, just a, one last stat I'll give you. If you look at our cybersecurity ETF, which was the first in the world, ticker HACK, H-A-C-K, uh, and you look at its overlap by weightings with the NASDAQ 100 or with the S&P 500, uh, both of those overlaps are less than 3% in terms of the securities weighting in the NASDAQ 100 and the S&P 500 relative to hack. So most investors don't have a lot of exposure to cybersecurity if they just own the S&P 500 or the NASDAQ 100. So again, we think this is a really important theme uh, to add to a portfolio that has some unique characteristics between being growth oriented, but also having a measure of defensiveness. Yeah, that's, um, I think it's only about six, six, seven months ago. I mean, these stories come out all the time now, but it was the British Library. It tends to be often these, uh, industries that aren't so tech savvy, if you like. Uh, but they were, they were, the hackers got into their systems and it's not just the website. They go in, you know, they go into the back end. They lock out all the users that are using all the, uh, te tech systems for just managing work. And I think they still haven't been able to get access it six months later. Um, cause they wouldn't pay, you know, the demand that, that they were requesting. And, and this is happening all the time. And I suppose all this, as soon as this happens, you know, there's a necessity to, to, to spend on, on cyber. That's right. If you're not on your front foot as an industry, um, it's not a good look, look for you and you could have your whole business disabled. We've had a similar incident with hospitals here in the U.S. who didn't have appropriate cybersecurity protections where they've locked down patient records. They've locked down access to not only medical files, but medical equipment. And uh, it's, it's a really big issue. And, um, you know, it could be, we think, you know, one of the uh, biggest, you know, spends for many companies 
going forward in the future because uh, you can't have, you know, your business locked down and expose, you know, your patients or your clients to this type of liability. Uh, and unfortunately, due to kind of, again, the whole digitization of our world is becoming uh, more and more common. Yeah. And do you, who are the largest um, clients of these companies generally? Do you, are they just typically the, are we, you know, is it the Fortune 500 that's going to be the ones that are spending the most on this moving forward? The ones that have, I don't know, more more to lose, more, you know? Yeah, that's right. So, you know, typically it's been kind of the largest companies who especially are publicly traded. You know, there's certainly uh, legislation here in the U.S., as well as kind of best practices from a publicly traded company standpoint to have uh, measures in place uh, on cybersecurity um, and the vendors that you use to have those measures in place. So there's, you know, kind of liability oriented um, issues that face these companies. So they have to spend, uh, believe it or not, governments are also very large spenders in private cybersecurity. Uh, they often have their own defenses um, internally, but uh, as a tax vulnerability, vulnerabilities or even testing happens, many of the governments outsource to these private contractors. Uh, so, you know, I think, you know, it kind of comes from the top down, if you will, because the, the bigger risks are there. But certainly um, you're seeing an emergence of um, even everyday people having to now, you know, uh, find cybersecurity solutions, uh, whether that's VPNs mm-hmm. or uh, scanning software to protect their devices because of, you know, ransomware issues and how traumatic that can be. So, um, yeah, it's, it's governments and corporations kind of, you know, really pushing down the spending. But again, we're seeing, you know, quite a bit of an increase at the individual level. So it's almost no, you know, sector that really uh, can ignore this uh, nowadays. To your point, you know, it used to be more um, companies that had high tech uh, businesses where they had trade secret secrets or maybe operated like infrastructure uh, that could not be disrupted, um, whether that maybe is power or transportation. So there was an essential nature, but we're seeing it now migrate to, you know, libraries and other types of uh, businesses or concerns that maybe you wouldn't think of initially. But again, the cost of once you create this uh, a cyber attack or a scheme to you know, access or control this data, uh, its scalability is, is, um, is immense and uh, the cost of deploying it is very low. And all you need is you know, less than 1% of these computers to be um, not defended. And that can allow you into very large systems and sometimes ecosystems. And um, as you know, the damage can be substantial. So uh, this is another form of, you know, essentially modern day insurance, if you will, on the technology side to protect against those losses and those liabilities. It's really utility in nature. And um, that wasn't the case 10 years ago. In some ways, that's that was great back uh, you know, 10 years ago. You didn't have to worry about it. But of course, you know, digitization comes with a lot of great efficiencies, too. So I think we've probably um, you know, reaped more efficiencies from becoming more digital you know, worldwide. Um, unfortunately, there is a downside to that. Yeah. And, so, and they also call this the, the future, this era of, sort of robotics and automation. Um, and I can only assume as, you know, as that sector grows, you know, I mean, it's some people forecasting to grow exponentially, um, as, you know, the, these robots become cheaper and there's, you know, many different innovations that we're starting to use, a lot of them in, in the sort of, um, supply chain for deliveries and et cetera initially. Um, but 
everything's everything's online like you're saying so it's all it's all digital everything's going online so the risk is is gigantic for any of these companies that you know their entire business is based off of connect the, the net, network connectivity um so my question would be um with the advances in ai that we're also seeing which obviously will support this sort of need for you know, every, all this these networks are online as well but it also does, uh, allow the hackers to be more sophisticated potentially in their their attacks so could you see that as a a reason why um you know it might fuel even further demand for people to have protective measures against this yeah yeah i think it's going to be an arms race like you said uh because we're only seeing more of our lives um becoming interconnected with uh the web with in computers and automation so you know if you're a bull on artificial intelligence ai and certainly that's been one of the best performing market segments in the last year and a half a market leader you have to look at you know what technologies will be coupled with ai and kind of grow right alongside of it. And um, just like the gold rush, um, you know, certain people, um, you know, went out and mined gold uh, here in the U.S. and uh, created fortunes. But, you know, there was a lot of other fortunes made with people who sold pickaxes, shovels, blue jeans and equipment. And cybersecurity is like that. It's a pick and axe play relative to AI. By the way, so are blockchain companies because blockchain is going to have to be one of the solutions there to build trust. But that's a, that's a whole nother uh, market segment. Cybersecurity, though, is going to um, really see an arms race here because AI will create now um, or have the ability to create new and and inventive ways to attack systems, computers, software uh, on the dark side. And then on the quote unquote white side, uh, the white hat group is going to have to kind of reverse engineer this or try to get ahead. So I think there's going to be an arms race in terms of not only, you know, AI, but also, you know, getting ahead using AI uh, to build out cyber uh, security solutions. So um, this is, again, another kind of a tailwind, if you will, for this sector, um, because uh, whether you, um, you know, see kind of the trend on AI, on robotics, on kind of this interconnectedness, all of these areas uh, mean that there's more vulnerabilities and, uh, you know, companies, governments, individuals are just going to have to be more um, apt to secure. It also could yeah. create a lot of M&A in, in this business as well, uh, because it could end up being that, you know, the cybersecurity companies that lead the charge, you know, have the most capital, have the most scale, have the most access to AI, maybe even com- uh, quantum computing to kind of stay ahead, if you will, uh, against hackers. So that's another interesting kind of trend that um, we think will emerge in cybersecurity, kind of this um, M&A activity, which uh, often happens uh, in industries when, um, you know, a lot of demand and scale happen at the same time. Yeah. And um, what about the uh, hack ETF? Could you just comment on some of the holdings in there? What, What sort of companies have we got in the top 10? Yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, Hack is an index-based ETF. I think what sets it apart is, you know, to be included in Hack, a company has to have 90% or more of their revenue coming from cybersecurity. Um, you know, most ETFs that are in the space um, have a 50% or more hurdle. And indeed, Hack, historically, it was the first cybersecurity ETF, had a 50% hurdle. 
Um, and because when hack, you know, launched, um, nearly 10 years ago, um, there weren't as many pure play companies available. So that 50% uh, standard, um, was a- allowed you to kind of capture companies that had robust cybersecurity businesses, but also did other things like networking, et cetera. Well, you know, this kind of new world we live in, uh, and the growth of the cybersecurity industry has led to, uh, the ability for the index to be Come more pure and hack to, in my opinion, be the purest ETF in the space with this 90% uh, revenue uh, capture. So, you know, looking at some of the top holdings, and of course, those are available on our website, amplifyetfs.com. Hack's top holdings include Broadcom, Palo Alto Networks, CrowdStrike. Cloudfare, Zscaler. Uh, these are names that you hear quite a bit uh, during earnings season that are kind of bellwether names that um, really focus in on the cybersecurity space. And these are, you know, companies that aren't just making money from, you know, creating software uh, or services to protect. Often these type, these types of companies are called in um, uh, to go out and do the forensics of uh, cyber uh, attacks and review systems both on the corporate and the government side. So, um, you know, not only do they have clients, they often are called in to kind of do the cleanup. And mm-hmm. uh, those are, that's a, unfortunately a good source of new business. Many of these companies have substantial subscription based revenue uh, because of their services and, you know, reoccurring revenue is a pretty nice thing to have in, in today's market. So <laughs> you know, cybersecurity, again, we think is a really attractive area. A lot of growth going forward, unfortunately. Um, and, you know, frankly, as an investor, um, you know, no one likes to read or see news about cybersecurity events or hacks. But you when you own a, a, a product like Hack that, you know, invests in these cybersecurity companies, you know, a small part of, of hearing about those negative events um, maybe makes you feel good because you are investing in companies that are seeking to protect and remedy that. And in fact, it, it probably helps your portfolio in the long run uh, due to kind of those adverse events. So I think you invest in, in hack for the growth, some of the defensiveness around spending, but then also that you're helping invest in the future of protection, which I think we're all you know exposed to those risks today more so than ever. Yep. Yeah. So definitely a very unique theme i think that you know we don't really get this whatever happens it's probably going to do well just the nature of where the world's going and uh you know it definitely stands out in 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 all the themes that we 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 look at um and also you get this uh and you can see that sorry in in the movements of of many of the stocks are are less volatile on the day there you know it's almost almost like slow steady consistent growth which is because they just growing at a good rate, it seems, every quarter, which is just really good to see. But yeah. Um, Well, thanks for for that, Chris. Um, Cannabis, I thought, is the next one we could look at, which has also also been really interesting. It's been obviously a sector that's not done as many small caps, didn't do well over the last sort of 18 months or so, but over the last six months, it's been just showing signs of a recovery. Um, In particular, there's been a recent buzz uh, around potential changes in, in legislation, uh, even rumors of rescheduling or descheduling, uh, and movements towards legalization in states like Pennsylvania. What impacts do you foresee on, on the market going forward? Any comments on that? Yeah. So, 
Um, cannabis is definitely, you know, another theme that we think has a very long kind of life cycle, uh, not only here in the U.S., but uh, globally. And, um, you know, it's been disappointing the last, you know, for most of the last 18 months or two years, you know, recently in the last, say, three to four months, it's had a nice run. And in fact, year to date uh, and here in 2024, cannabis has been one of the top performing themes you know, well, you know, more than, you know, 35% on average across the cannabis ETFs. And that's really due to kind of, um, as you mentioned, this, um, I don't know if I'd call it a rumor or a trend that, you know, maybe legislation or, um, you know, a change in government posture from the federal government um, is coming here in the U.S. Uh, cannabis is still a Schedule One drug in the U.S., which puts it in the same category as a drug like cocaine. And, um, you know, that creates a variety of issues um, for cannabis companies. Um, uh, this is a little bit of an odd kind of juxtaposition because, you know, uh, the majority of uh, you know, states here in the U.S. from the state standpoint have legalized cannabis in one form of, or another, whether that's for medical use, which is fairly widespread in the U.S., or for adult recreational use, which is becoming more uh, widespread. In fact, uh, most, you know, U.S. opinion polls, you know, have the, the, the number at, you know, over 70% of Americans think that cannabis should be uh, legalized. So the federal government seems to be a little bit behind here. And, you know, around, you know, four to five months ago, we saw some movement that uh, maybe uh, they're going to catch up to uh, public opinion and what most of the states are doing. And that is really moving uh, cannabis from a schedule one drug down to a schedule three drug. And, you know, why that's important for cannabis companies is uh, today, um, because they operate in a business with schedule one, um, with a schedule one drug, they're not able to deduct any business expenses um, when they do their taxes. Um, wow. uh, and by being able to become a schedule three drug, they would be able to now deduct uh, business expenses like any other business in the U.S., well, specifically what that does for cannabis companies is it um, makes them, in many cases, profitable. Uh, you can imagine running a business and not being able to deduct any of your expenses against your income. There's a different profile of that business versus being able to deduct normal and ordinary business expenses. Once that happens, the profile from a financial standpoint changes dramatically from cannabis. Uh, then a follow-on happens. Uh, if you're now in the Schedule 3 uh, side, um, you probably will be able to see some movement on uh, uh, access to capital markets. So currently, um, you know, there are some bills floating around uh, that are revolving around banking uh, for cannabis companies. You know, most you know, cannabis companies can't bank at normal banks. So literally many of these companies deal in cash and have vaults, et cetera. Very inefficient. But in addition, they're very limited in terms of their access to capital, whether that's, you know, being listed on, on, on smaller exchanges or, or very or less liquid exchanges. Um, you know, institutional investors can't actually invest in, you know, a schedule one type business. They 
potentially could in a schedule three business. So uh, there's a variety of domino effects that would happen should uh, essentially the DEA and FDA uh, reschedule cannabis. And we've seen in the last month uh, a variety of uh, sources indicate that this is a, a priority. Um, you know, when you look at, at this from the federal government standpoint, you know, uh, being able to, um, you know, kind of legalize cannabis and use it as a tax um a tax generator um, in a variety of different ways uh, seems like it would be helpful. Government spending uh, and government debt uh, both are at fairly, uh, I guess, at all time highs. So that's a, a motivation. Also, you know, we're in an election season here, so it's probably politically uh, advantageous to be the party that um, or the administration that you know legalizes in some form uh, cannabis, whether that's you know descheduling or providing access to capital markets. Uh, so this is a kind of an exciting time. We'll see in the next few months kind of how this plays out. And you can see cannabis uh, stocks move dramatically, at least U.S.-based cannabis stocks move dramatically in terms of price movement based yeah. on headlines coming out of Washington. Um, this would be the one unique theme, I'd say, Ed, that retail investors have an uh, edge over on uh, edge versus institutional investors. Generally, institutional investors, almost every segment of the market can, can get in first, uh, usually through private equity. And, um, you know, ultimately retail investors get to participate at the tail end. Well, because of, you know, these issues regarding cannabis, um, you know, we're not seeing the institutional engagement. In fact, again, almost no institutional okay. investors in this space. So, you know, these cannabis ETFs allow um, retail investors to get in ahead of, you know, the institutional investor. By the, by the way, that's not just institutional investors kind of investing in these companies once they become, you know, um, compliant with federal law. But, you know, the other side of the coin is once many of these cannabis specific companies be have access to capital markets, we expect to see a lot of mergers and acquisitions mm -hmm. with traditional con, uh, consumer packaged goods companies. So whether that's, you know, tobacco companies or the Johnson and Johnson of the world that do a variety of different types of health oriented products, we think that many of these mainstream brands are going to go out and um, acquire these different cannabis companies to become units within their overall business. Because let's face it, um, you know, Johnson and Johnson knows how to distribute, uh, you know, products to consumers that might help with anxiety or sleep or inflammation. Likewise, you know, the tobacco companies know how to uh, package and distribute cigarettes. Alcohol companies know how to, you know, uh, distribute um, adult use type products. So, um, what could happen here is, again, a variety of things very quickly, access to capital markets, increased profitability, institutional investors coming in, mergers and acquisitions. So this is one of the reasons we, we think this space is really going to be exciting. And then once that happens, I think we'll play out over the next 10 to 15 years as a, a consumer package good story. And um, as a, I think we'll talk about later, there's a variety of interesting use cases for cannabis. Yeah, I like the fact um, you mentioned as particularly interesting time due to the upcoming U.S. election. You know, they're for, not forced, but there's some there's some pressure there because they they want to do well in the in, in the polls. Yeah. Um, I had a question about uh, so more global question because uh, Germany also moving towards legalization of cannabis. It's been t it's been said that this is like happening. It's just a matter of when it happens, not if. 
Um, we should also join Malta and Luxembourg in the EU who have legalized it as well. Where, where do you see the most significant market opportunities? Because I know there's um, Amplify's got a, a range of, of ETFs, some focused on the US specifically, others more global. Um, yeah. Where do you see the opportunity going forward? At the moment, yeah, so you know, we definitely think this is going to be, you know, similar size to traditional uh, consumer packaged goods marketplaces. And the U.S. tends to be one of the largest uh, in the world. Um, you know, certainly China is is made progress there as well as India. But I think probably those markets are going to be further behind. It is interesting to note, you know, traditionally the U.S. has kind of uh, been. Um, behind, let's say, say Europe and other countries in terms of adult use type uh, substances. I mean, we had the prohibition of alcohol in the U.S. for for a number of years. And, you know, that hasn't really been the case in in Europe. Um, we also have, you know, uh, older, you know, uh, drinking ages, for example, here in the U.S. and other things than potential many countries in Europe. So uh, this is kind of uh, unique that the U.S. seems to be leaning into this a little bit more, at least from a state perspective and from a public opinion standpoint, than um, maybe the rest of the world, uh, for example, Europe. However, it does seem like um, that's starting to change in Europe. And um, we think that will be a, a pretty substantial marketplace. Uh, maybe, you know, the, the second large Largest uh, in the world, you know, a lot of the other Asia Asia Pacific com- uh, uh, Asia Pacific countries are are even further behind in terms of their view uh, on kind of these substances. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think um, the U.S. is likely to be the largest market for the foreseeable future, followed by by Europe and then several other you know countries. Canada certainly they've been kind of kind of the lead in 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 the globe so, uh, in terms of their embrace of of cannabis and some of the capital market access uh, Canadian companies have. Uh, but yeah, we think this is ultimately a global story, um, with likely the U.S. continuing to be the biggest market. Uh, and again, we're talking about really two markets here, adult use. So similar yeah. to maybe alcohol or let's just say tobacco. Uh, and then this other side of the coin, which is really kind of the wellness market, which has, uh, uh, has a lot of potential as well. And do you have any, any sort of thoughts on which side of that market you think offers the best opportunity? Yeah. I mean, so I, you know, one of the reasons, you know, I think Amplify was mostly intrigued by this marketplace is the wellness aspect. Uh, when we see that, um, for example, like CBD cream, uh, is in CBD, uh, used for inflammation and other types of kind of, um, medicinal purposes is, you know, one of the top, uh, growing categories in U.S. drugstores. And then we see that, uh, the group that, uh, buys the most of it are kind of, uh, senior citizens and, uh, people who are retired. Uh, that really gets our attention. Um, and we think that, you know, uh, CBD is just one kind of, um, compound that's found in the cannabis plant. Um, there's close to 30 other types of, um, uh, uh, compounds like CBD, but, you know, have potentially different use cases that are being researched. So, you know, we see a lot of, you know, potential for the wellness side. With that being said, you cannot deny the adult use side. Um, and the adult use side is really kind of, you know, can cannabis use, uh, you know, either through, for, through a variety of methods, can it take the place or, 
um, you know, take market share from alcohol or tobacco. Uh, and, you know, there are a variety of instances here in the U.S. where we see in some of the states and some of the um, kind of marketplaces in terms of, you know, uh, alcohol sales or alcohol receipts or taxation relative to cannabis taxation and receipts. We're seeing in some cases cannabis catch up or replace alcohol in terms of kind of the leading adult use, um, uh, substance. Um, you know, there's a fair amount of research into kind of the different impact, the different, uh, health impact that, you know, cannabis may have versus alcohol or tobacco. And certainly there are a lot more, uh, at least initially today, more risks, um, known uh, about tobacco use as well as alcohol use. You know, there are a lot of research being done on cannabis, but initially it seems like the research seems to point to maybe some of the less impacts from a, from a variety of standpoint, whether it's, uh, you know, potentially, you know, from a cancer risk standpoint or an impairment standpoint. Um, so you know, I think the, the jury's out there, but, you know, I think if cannabis is at least on par with, you know, tobacco or alcohol as an adult use um, alternative, we think that, you know, the market could be, you know, uh, fairly robust there. That being said, you know, I think, you know, personally, I'm more intrigued by the wellness side. And yeah. um, when you look at all the research and, you know, it's it's across the spectrum of what you go into a drugstore today to solve, whether that's, again, inflammation, anxiety, uh, sleep. Uh, uh, you know, in some cases, there's been some interesting, you know, uh, breakthroughs on, on, you know, specific conditions like nausea um, yeah. or even seizures. So there's a lot going on there. You know, cannabis has kind of been a substance. Well, it has it has been a substance that hasn't received the type of rigorous research and funding because of its status as, you know, essentially a schedule one drug. And, you know, in the last two years, especially that's changed as states have changed. So there's a lot of money now um, going into researching all of um, kind of what cannabis is, everything from, you know, what THC does is uh, to CBD to some of the other nearly 30 other compounds with these three letter abbreviations and how those compounds may be able to be used in different ways to um, maybe more effectively treat um, issues that the human body experiences today versus opioids or, you know, other synthetic, um, you know, substances that unfortunately in many cases have proven to cause more problems, whether through addiction or abuse or side effects. So, um, you know, I I personally think that the wellness side is is quite promising. And, you know, I think we'll know in the next several years, a variety of new use cases and, um, you know, the science, um, it's kind of coming at a great time because, you know, we talked earlier about AI, you know, the, the computing power, the uh, turnaround time to be able to go in and research compounds and their impacts and the different combinations that are available has exponentially grown. So I think, you know, this whole AI push and how it's affecting, you know, life sciences, whether that's vaccinations, or studying different compounds and, um, or trying to, you know, create new use cases. Um, I think it's happening all in a, a kind of in a, a nice parallel, uh, timeframe as, you know, cannabis is emerging as, you know, again, a plant 
that is now receiving a lot of research and testing to see what this plant may be able to do. And again, we know that there's you know roughly 30 different compounds that that need to be researched um, more robustly. So over the coming yeah. years, I think there's a lot of promise there, and and that certainly could be something that propels cannabis. You know, potentially at some point, maybe we have a wellness cannabis ETF and an adult use cannabis ETF. Different co- companies, you know, going after different verticals. Yeah. And so today, how can you get exposure to the steam amplifier and what, what sets those ETFs apart from others in the industry as well? Yeah. So we have, you know, currently three different cannabis ETFs. Um, you know, we started with one several years ago and that is an actively managed cannabis ETF. Uh, by uh, uh, Tim Seymour of Seymour Asset Management. Many U.S. investors know him from his um, continued presence on CNBC uh, and the show Fast Money. Um, he's been a longtime cannabis investor and uh, has focused a lot of his time on emerging markets, um, whether that's you know emerging market sectors like cannabis or actual emerging market countries. So pretty nimble and effective investor. So we started an actively managed cannabis ETF with him a number of years ago. And CNBS, um, you know, is, is really split at this point between U.S. company exposure, uh, kind of uh, having exposure to MSOs, multi-state operators, and then um, Canadian companies, which, you know, Canada is kind of where it's at in terms of, you know, most companies um, uh, being um, available on, you know, uh, exchanges in, in Toronto and in Canada, uh, being more liberal, if you will, with their capital markets access. Um, so uh, that's one solution we have. You know, recently we've done this acquisition where we acquired, you know, 14 different ETFs and two of those were cannabis ETFs, but they're different than CNBS. So the first one is MJ, which is the original cannabis ETF, the first cannabis ETF in the United States. That is an index based uh, product. So it's rules based in terms of how it selects its exposure to cannabis companies. That's about 60% U.S. Um, exposure and about 40% um, uh, uh, Canada and other country exposure. Uh, so more a global rules-based uh, approach. Um, and then um, we also have MJ U.S., which is kind of a sister fund to MJ. Uh, the difference is um, it only owns or has exposure to U.S. multi-state operators, so U.S. focused only, and um, you know that is technically an active ETF, but it actually um, really tracks an index uh, when you own swaps on on securities, which uh, MJUS does. You have to be structured as an active ETF, but the actual security selection of the companies is exposed to is done through a rules based index process. So really to sum up, we have kind of a global actively managed cannabis ETF in terms of CNBS. We have a global uh, index-based product. Uh, and then we have um, another uh, and a US-focused product in MJUS that uh, has a rules-based approach to se- selecting securities, but again, is technically an active ETF. So you see different performance levels in all three of these products based off news events. Um, so, you know, for example, um, you know, when you see positive U.S. news, which is kind of ruling the market, you know, the product that uh, has the you know most upside there is MJUS 
because it's a hundred hundred percent exposed to U.S. names. Um, you know, if 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 this U.S. trend fails or stalls or on days there's bad news, MJUS will be the worst performing of our suite, and yep. you'll see you know MJ and uh, CNBS do a little bit better. Um, so kind of different flavors for different people who want um, unique approaches, uh, you know, to invest in this space. Um, and, you know, when you look at them, many of them have a lot of the same company exposure. Um, there's certainly kind of similar leading companies that are here in the U.S. in the form of multi-state operators. Uh, same with Canada. However, you know, there's different weighting schemes that all three of these use. And obviously, uh, ETFs, good way to play this sector because it's quite volatile. So uh, and, you know, different companies get different benefits from different news. So you get that average in the ETF, which can mean it's a little bit less uh, up and down in your portfolio if you're doing the single equities. Just before we uh, wrap up, I wanted to talk about another one other theme, um, the Israel tech ETF. Yeah. Um, what factors do you think contribute to Israel's historic success as a, as a global technology hub? Yeah, I mean, you know, part of it is really, you know, the scrappiness and kind of the survival nature that Israel has had to embrace, um, you know, it's being a contest in a contested area of the Middle East and, you know, and starting out as a, a nation that didn't have, um, you know, a ton of resources, for example, from a food perspective, uh, being in, you know, a, in a country or an area of the world that's quite arid in a lot of places, um, not everywhere. Uh, you know, they had to be um, uh, really kind of uh, innovative. So, you know, Israel is known as the startup nation. And when you look at um, some of the unique aspects of Israel, you, you know, you find out that as a nation, they spent more on R&D than any other nation relative to GDP. Um, by the way, number two there is South Korea um, as another kind of uh, kind of innovation hub. Um, if you look at Tel Aviv, it has the most startups of any single city in the world. Um, so there's a kind of a uh, a culture of of creating new technology, being innovative uh, from Israel uh, uh, as a as a country, and you know it's reflected in many of these real breakthroughs that have happened, you know, historically um, out of Israel. Um, there's a variety of technologies, and we can talk about them here in a second. That you know were came about from Israel, and then even today, when you look at kind of the mix of types of uh, companies that are there. It's all these kind of emerging sectors. So a, a unique way to play Israel. Many people, you know, who are interested in Israel might buy a general kind of Israel country ETF that kind of owns like the you know, standard companies, but make no mistake, iTech is kind of like the NASDAQ 100, if you will, of Israeli companies, whether they're based, uh, you know, uh, in Israel, or they have, you know, uh, a majority of their assets in Israel. Also note that there's over 400 companies worldwide that have research centers based in Israel um, to kind of create new innovation. So uh, this is a really unique country and having access to these um, companies that are innovating across the spectrum uh, is exciting. And again, it's one of the new ETFs, iTech, I-T-E-Q, that we've uh, acquired um, in this recent transaction. Action. So we're excited to have it as part of the Amplify ETF lineup. And um, even though we're talking about Israel, they a lot of these companies people probably know they've got a global presence. They're not you know just present in the Israeli market. So can you just touch on 
some of the software sectors or and or companies you know in the top ten in the ETF so that you know people can just understand who we're talking about here. Yeah, so let me give you a few names like CyberArk Software, Checkpoint Software, Amdocs, Sentinel One, Wix.com, Monday.com, SolarEdge, um, companies that, you know, are, I think are, you know, most people probably have heard some of those names. When you actually look at the sectors that are represented um, inside, you know, iTech, 26% of the portfolio is cybersecurity and defense tech solutions. But another 25% of the portfolio is uh, software on the fintech side, as well as digital advertising. Another 24% is big data and applied artificial intelligence. Then you have a variety of other sectors that are you know, 9% or less, including clean energy, water tech, robotics, industrial automation, uh, biotech and medical devices, and communications equipment. So it's really a, a plethora of uh, uh, the, the technologies that are being um, kind of developed today and um, kind of exciting to see um, what's, you know, come out of uh, the, you know, Israel historically. I mean, the firewall was invented in Israel. Drip water irrigation um, was invented in Israel. Um, the answering machine was uh, invented. Um, you know, uh, a, ton of, a lot of the sensors are around autonomous driving uh, related to, you know, a company that most people know, Mobileye, um, are, have their origins in uh, Israel, a lot of solar applications. So this is a great way to own these companies. And they're really under-owned for the most part, especially if you own a general Israel uh, uh, index ETF. Um, and, you know, we think, um, you know, there's a, probably a real special situation here, given some of the recent issues in kind of the Israel geopolitical standpoint, um, you know, whether that's the judiciary conflict that happened uh, that kind of pushed down um, Israeli markets in the last year. And then right after that, the Hamas attack and the continuing operation going on there. Um, you're really buying these uh, companies and this index at what we think is a depressed valuation relative to its long-term track record and uh, probably a real special opportunity here to be able to buy innovation at a discount. Very hard to do that right now in U.S. markets. So uh, we think iTech is actually pretty timely right now. Yeah. Well, thanks very much, Christian. It's been great to go through just a couple of the, uh, or three of the ETFs that are available at Amplify. Before we um, finish, do you want to, is there anything you'd last, last words you'd like to leave with our audience? No, I would say, you know, Amplify ETFs uh, is a sponsor that is trying to provide products that really capitalize on themes that, you know, can hopefully offer investors a chance to outperform the broad-based index over time. So adding a few of these themes to your core holdings uh, in, in a complementary nature, we think could add some increased growth potential. I think there will be some increased volatility with these themes and additional risks, certainly, than the overall market. But we think over the long term, these innovative themes, uh, and we have, you know, now close to 20 of them, we highlighted three today, uh, we think are really important for the average investor who wants to try to, you know, eke out a little bit more growth on average over a long period of time. Uh, these, you know, themes are kind of transforming our marketplace. And in many cases, if you own the S&P 500 or a standard index, you have very little exposure to many of these themes and companies. So we'd encourage you to check out AmplifyETFs.com where we have a variety of theme ETFs. 
uh, many income ETFs and core ETFs as well. Uh, over 30 now uh, with a bit over 9 billion in AUM. And we just appreciate being able to uh, highlight a couple themes with you, Ed, on Opto and uh, look forward to speaking with you again. Yep. It's always great. Thanks very much, Christian. Thank you. Take care.